Welcome to GBC Cast. My name is TJ. Today we're going to be discussing two books. The first by Becky Chambers is called The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. And the second is by Jim Butcher in continuing our series pick with The Dresden Files, book three, Grave Peril. And welcome to our latest episode of GBC Cast, recorded for the month of May. We're going to be concentrating on two books, the first of which is by Becky Chambers, and the next by Jim Butcher, continuing our series pick. I'd like to go around and introduce everybody as usual, so that that way you have some familiarity with all of our voices and can acquaint yourself for the journey ahead. So let's start, well, let's do it alphabetically. I'm Vaz, and it's a pleasure to be here again. Yeah, okay. (laughs) It's going to be that month, isn't it? It is. Sorry. (laughs) So I'm Vaz. I'm Chris. I'm Fairy. I'm Leslie. I'm TJ. I'm Jessica. I could hear the group collectively say, does TJ or Leslie come after Fairy? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. That moment where we're all trying to remember the alphabet and completely pretending we're not. So this month we will be discussing... The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet by Becky Chambers, which I always, always want to call A Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, and Google keeps telling me I'm wrong. We will also be discussing Grave Peril, The Dresden Files, Book 3 by Jim Butcher. Two very exciting books, two very different books. And lest we waste any more time, let's get into it. The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet by Becky Chambers. Let's jump around and get everyone's thoughts really quickly. Boz, because you did such a wonderful job um, ushering us in this week, or month rather, do we want to start with you? Sure. So like you, I've always attributed the title to A instead of the. And I must say, be it the or be it a, it was a good book. Sci-fi is not really my forte, but I enjoyed reading it. I enjoyed the host of characters. I enjoyed the setting and the plot and some of the conflicts. And it really gives you food for thought on the AI spectrum. I particularly like all of the different 
species and how specious some people can be. Unfair, though, that may be. I love the term. So I think she did an excellent job introducing some of the characters. And the sheer unbridled creativity here deserves accolades. So it wasn't the best book I've read because, again, sci-fi is not my forte. But for what it is, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was entertaining. And I gave it a three-star review. Fair enough. Let's bounce over to who I feel is the polar opposite person from Boz. Leslie. Leslie, you are the opposite of Boz. What did you think of The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet by Becky Chambers? After we go through this, you're going to have to tell me why I'm the polar opposite of Boz. But oh, I'll happily explain. <laughs> I have a chart. I ha- you have a chart. <laughs> Okay, so I really enjoyed the book. Um, It felt good. The characters felt good. The resolutions of each individual story felt good. The ship felt good. And I think overall I'm, I'm very happy with the book. I wasn't sure at first what it was getting at because I just kind of felt like stuff was happening and then it took me a while to kind of realize that that was sort of the point and I'm satisfied with that my heart was happy and and things happened we'll put that on the back of the uh, the blurb if they ever ask us (laughs) to write the 20th anniversary it made my heart feel happy and it was good I've got to say that I really enjoyed the dynamic between the crew members. I thought it was just brilliant that they didn't get on right away. And I think that they'll always have their differences. But I think that they all learned something. And they learned something from the experiences and how those were resolved in their own lives. But I think that they definitely learned from each other. I get that. Leslie, be honest. You mm-hmm. wanted to say good instead of brilliant and stopped yourself. Maybe. <laughs> All right. Teasing Leslie aside, TJ, what, what are your thoughts on the issue? <laughs> I echo a lot of what Leslie said. Good. Uh, good. <laughs> good. Caveman, good. <laughs> I echo a lot of what Leslie said. I thought it was a... A very feel-goody book. I really did enjoy, and, and Fairy touched on this a little bit, and I found myself thinking about it, probably because the recording of the previous podcast was only like two weeks ago. But I read this book after the recording of that, and she touched on, when we were speaking of Full Moon, how she enjoyed Dresden's house. And that kept coming back to me in in sort of the same way. I like to see what happens when characters go home. The story is fantastic and everything, but it, it, it really helps flesh out the characters when they go home, take their shoes off and unwind. And I feel like we got a whole lot of that in this book. There was a lot of interplay, a lot of character building, a lot of development of relationships. And I really think that I enjoyed what, at least what I found was the was the underarching theme of acceptance that really stuck out to me the plot though it really was the long way to a small angry planet because i'm still not a hundred percent sure exactly what 
if I had to tell you what the plot was, I'm still not 100% sure other than these people got a cool contract to go to this planet and make a tunnel home. I felt like the plot was a little simplistic, but I didn't mind because it made me happy. I usually go last, but something I want to say actually directly relates to what TJ mentioned, so if no one minds. I enjoyed the book, and honestly, TJ, you mentioned the plot. I'd argue that there really isn't a plot. There's more of a narrative through line. What this reminded me of more than one novel is it almost reminded me of episodes of a TV show. There wasn't so much of a plot that kind of carried through the whole novel as there was a story arc, a narrative through line, I believe is the term I just used. And that's okay to me because it really wasn't about, well, we're going to this small, angry planet. I mean, we're going there. That is the driving motivator. But that's not what the book's about. That is just an excuse to put these people on the ship for a year so we can get these little nuggets, these little episodes of interaction with each other. And I found the whole thing to be a very comforting book. I enjoy found family stories. And this is probably one of the more enjoyable found family stories I've ever encountered. Because for Rosemary, the ship and the crew really do become a family, a family that she desperately needs. For me, that was everything I wanted from the book and everything I got beyond that, beyond the just that warm, fuzzy, fun acceptance feeling was a bonus. And there was lots of bonus. There was enough tension and conflict and humor, but... It was done in a uniquely the long way to a small, angry planet way. It was pacifist science fiction, which is something I don't think I've ever seen before. Even Star Trek that proclaims to be pacifist in a way, it sort of idealized pacifism over armed conflict, still usually ends with gunfire more often than not. Not here. On the rare occasion that a gun or weapon is used in this book, it's never by our main cast. And it's never on behalf of our main cast. And I kind of liked that. Fairy, what are your thoughts? Reading this book was like drinking a cup of tea with a bunch of cake. It was very warm. It was very comforting and comfortable. And it it made me smile. I share your love, Chris, for found family books. I really enjoy the the emotions that come with that and the often deep characters that come with that. And this book did not disappoint. There was a lot of emotional depth. There was a lot of character development. There was a lot of really complex relationships and situations. Uh, But it was a really wonderfully comforting book. It had enough plot in in the way that it has plot to keep me, but I didn't need it. I was I was fully there for the characters. And it's really rare that you find something that is a very deeply emotional book that doesn't get dark and heavy. And I love dark and heavy, but I'm not always in the mood. And so it's nice to find books that still have that great amount of feeling in them and yet still 
managed to keep things light. So I, I loved this book. I actually have a question that I get to ask on this book that I don't think I've ever or probably will ever get to ask again, barring a really unique pick. What was everyone's favorite episode and why? It was the one that made me feel the most uncomfortable um, because it really helped to drive the... Well, there there are two. The first is I really, really liked the interplay between Jenkins. Is that his name, Jenkins? Which one? Jenks. Jenks. Yes. Um, and Lovey. I really, really, that's the only regret I have about this book is I really wish that that had turned out differently. And I still hold out hope for the next books. I have I have a feeling that that interplay isn't done. The other one that I really enjoyed, and it actually made me a little uncomfortable at first, is the interactions and the relationship between Sissix and Rosemary. What really stuck out to me is she's doing the research on on Sissix's family and comes to realize that the ship is, is her feather family and goes to, well offers to couple with her and that made me a little uncomfortable and i was i was okay with ash and ashby and pay because they were mostly humanoid but i couldn't wrap my head around a lizard and a human getting it on and that stuck out to me but on further reflection it is the ultimate reaching out and accepting one another and attempting to make your cultures and just showing affection and that really stuck out to me so i'm gonna have to say those two were my favorite so with the jinx and lovey thing it wasn't so much a single episode as that whole dynamic that kind of resonated with you yeah and i i put that into an episode because i feel like if you were to because they were their story was interspersed. You got scenes. If of you them. cut everything else out, that could have been a novella to itself. Yeah. And it would have been coherent. Yeah, exactly. I am going to continue that line of thought and present two episodes. The first Cheating being... bastards. <laughs> Alright, fine, I'll just do one then. No, please, Bob, please give us two. Well, no, because I actually thought of another one that I enjoyed very much. So the first one deals with Sissix herself and how everyone had an opportunity to visit her family. The dynamics there, and that word fits so appropriately here, is utterly fascinating to me. You get to see the physical interactions. You get to see the familial love and how that family dynamic works. And that was really, really cool to see. And as I said, creative. The second one episode that I found particularly enjoyable revolves around Corbin. Corbin is this quintessentially curmudgeonly guy. He's just a curmudgeonly fellow. Very grumpy, very disheartened. And over time, you come to understand the deep complexity behind Corbin. You come to know that the cloning of Corbin and how grave that has become. So one of my favorite episodes is the revelation that Sissix, with whom he had not really been getting along, finds out that she has to take guardianship of him. Otherwise, he was doomed. Doomed to die, I think. 
And that was a really powerful moment because it really, to me, speaks to how important acceptance is and how important understanding is. But it also speaks to how humble you have to be in order to get to that particular level. And you kind of have to be. You have to be grateful. You have to be appreciative, at least in Corbin's case, because she was his saving grace, quite literally. And that spoke volumes. So I really enjoyed that. I do want to add, because that was one of my favorite moments, and maybe not necessarily my favorite episode, is I love that Sissick's saving Corbin was never in question. As you made it very clear, yeah. no, that's, that was, that's never that. in doubt. Of yeah. course I'm going to do this. Exactly. Yeah. Like there wasn't, like in a lot of other books, that would have been the question, wouldn't it? That would have been the debate. Is this guy's been racist to me? He's been an ass to me this whole time. Do I sacrifice my own freedom to save his life? And it's like, no, in this book, it's, that's not even the question. Not even a little bit. And I think you bring something extremely important to the table. To me, this is what exactly, I, I liked it because it highlights that humility, that sense of humility that you have to feel, both for Corbin, I would say, and for Sissix, because Sissix viewed him as a racist or specious pig. And in fact, I think that's actually what she calls him at one point. She's and not wrong. She, oh, absolutely not. <laughs> No, she's definitely not wrong. But she has to bring herself down from that peg and almost has to humble herself, in my opinion, to say, okay, you know what? I have to do this. He is family. And Corbin also has to feel that measure of humility. So there is humility, I'd say, on both of their parts. Interesting. Thank you for sharing that, Boz. That was actually really, really nice. First one um, is close to the beginning. God, you're where... doing two, aren't you? Yes, I am. <laughs> okay. We can count. Ready? One, two. Anyway, um, so the first one is when um, she's come aboard and she's done her tour and it's time to go to dinner. Um, and just the encounter with Dr. Chef introducing himself and just how I mean it continues throughout the book that how just wonderfully open and accepting of things that have passed and accepting of things that are to come he is and just nurturing like above everything just that nurturing presence resonated with me because I realized that that's who I want to be just kind of that interplay of cooking the food and setting it out and basically just you know welcoming her in that kind of age-old tradition of you know having them sit at your table and then the second one is when Ohan is at the window and he's shaving his fur and he cuts himself and that resonated with me is because he's so I wouldn't say stuck on his beliefs. He's just so that's who he's always been. And it's holy. And to do anything else is sacrilege. And it just struck me how sometimes a lot of us, that's how we can be as well. And it's so easy to become 
close-minded to the point where we hurt ourselves when we don't let other people in. Everybody stole my favorites. Um. <laughs> okay, well, if everyone stole your favorites, then talk a little bit about the the like. Let us know what those episodes are, and then let maybe talk about why they resonated with you because. Yep. That's half the charm of this question at this point is not necessarily what the episodes are, but why those stuck out to us. So I also really liked Sizzix and Rosemary in the way that their coupling began. Because I tend to really enjoy unexpected romances that are very much there, but don't take over the entirety of everything else. So so watching Rosemary go on this discovery of, well, should I should I do this? And I don't want to, like, I want to do it because I want to do it. And I don't know if I want to do it because, like, this is expected. Like, what do I do? And, and of course, Sensex is like, no, you don't, you don't need to, like, do that. The, there's so much uncertainty there. And I found the uncertainty really, really sweet. And I think that it, their relationship was very honest and very beautiful because of its – it sort of had, had a purity to it that I liked. It wasn't, you know, all black clothing and skimpy and islands and, you know – Whatever the case may be. It was just a draw between two people. Uh, and especially and so, what would black skimpy clothing right. be on a lizard? Uh, on, on a, a lizard. giant sort of bipedal feathered lizard? Like, what would that exactly. look like? I also, in general, really liked the term feather family. I like that sort of cultural significance of, uh, you know, of branching out into your own person and having your own. That sort of really was, was the found family concept solidified culturally, ah. and that I found really unique Birds of a if I had, mm-hmm. then also the uh rosemary and the cook because he he sort of epitomized to me this this comfort of i'm here and i'm going to feed you and i'm very open and he was a very emotional character but he was also very strange and so i think that was a really interesting way to sort of get rosemary into the wonderful strangeness that was life on the ship with all these people of like they're all people these feelings are all still a thing, but they're going to look a little bit, um, you know, weird, for lack of a better word. And so his his gentleness and his obvious care and devotion to his kitchen and the people who were in it, I think, made for a really beautiful segue and was one of the places where I felt the warmth of this book come through the most was in their interactions. There are a couple, and I feel like I can make it a couple now. The first one that really stood out to me, or really stands out to me, and this is not in sequential order, it's just the one that pops into my brain, is the situation with the spiders, the the hostage situation. Where they come on board and, you know, they're not, they're looking for fuel, food and they're looking for energy. And yes, they, the first thing that happens is that they assault the captain for reasons that we don't entirely understand. But I loved that the situation wasn't resolved with violence. Um, Ashby didn't turn into the brave space adventurer. Rosemary didn't pull out some sort of surprising, daring, you know, daring do and, you know, acrobatic martial arts. She spoke a language they spoke. She talked to them. She figured out not only what they wanted, but why they needed it and worked with them. 
worked with them so that everyone got to walk away from that situation happy and alive. I've literally never seen that in science fiction before. And after reading that scene, that chapter, I wondered, why don't we see this in science fiction more? Why don't we see the situation get de-escalated? Where two sides can actually figure out what's driving the other and actually achieve a peaceful resolution. I don't like any of the answers I'm coming up with for why there isn't more of that in science fiction. Because I don't like what that says about us as a people. And I think we can do better. And I say that as a person whose book could basically be titled The Amaranth Chronicles, Escalation of Violence. But I think as a culture, we can do better. And I think we need to have more fiction that works like that. The second one, and this is the one where the book broke my heart, and I'm aping a little bit of TJ here, but a little bit more specifically, it's after they've left the the collapsing tunnel and Lovelace or Lovey is having that cascade, you know, that, those cascading errors, and they describe it as like having a bunch of strokes and all the information is there, but she can't access it anymore. And they're talking about how to, if they can recover her and it's a 50, 50 chance that what they get back will be lovey and a 50, 50% chance that the new installation will just junk those old memories and them helping jinx cope with this and jinx actually helping to perform this procedure. And then we switch over to Lovelace. And I want to say Lovelace because it's decidedly not lovey anymore. And her not understanding why no one's talking to her. Or why everyone is so upset. And then trying to figure that out. And knowing something awful happened. And understanding that Jenks is in pain. But not being the thing that can solve that and not knowing why. And then, of course, uh, Jinx and Kizzy's friend finally talks to her and discusses her with her the situation, makes her understand what's going on. And then how to resolve it. And it's like, we're going to use this body that Jinx bought for the other lovey because it's not your fault you're not lovey. But it's not fair to you or Jenks that this situation is the way it is. It's not fair to Jenks to hear your voice coming out of these speakers. And it's not fair to you that Jenks has all this baggage towards someone that you resemble. And you need to come with me because we can't do this to him and we can't do this to you. And Jesus Christ, I'm tearing up talking about this. But it's just, it's very poignant. And I absolutely adore that entire sequence. Now, Pepper is a very generous person. And I think she came during a great time of need. I also suspect that they are going to have adventures. 
Oh, so I, I have started but not finished the sequel. The sequel is oh, about Lovelace and Pepper. So good. I know you mentioned earlier you don't know why they attack the captain. Um, there no, was... I said we didn't at the time. I know oh, why. Oh, okay. Like... It's just at the time we didn't know. We so didn't like, know what? why they assaulted him. Gotcha. We just know that they did. And in most books, that's when fighting would have started. That's when it would have become no longer a communication. It would have become resistance because now they're not being reasonable. They've attacked us unprovoked. Well, but and the no. cool thing is I think she wasn't even there when it happened. She just kind of came in and was like, what's up? She did know that Ashby was hurt, though. Right. She was able to identify that. But yeah, even then, even as the situation risked spiraling out of control, she de-escalates. They all de-escalate. And then I did laugh when we find out later why they attacked him. is because of the gesture, because he was tired trying to communicate, and he rubs his temples and eyes. And to them, that's a, 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 a visual sign that says, literally, I would rather rub shit in my eyes than listen to you speak. All right, let's move into, and this will touch on something that we, that clearly came up for most of us in when we talked about our favorite episodes, but maybe not. In any case, I want each of you to talk a little bit about what character, individual character, resonated with you the most. It could be someone who is deeply tied into your favorite episode or not. But who did you connect with the most? Who did you enjoy the most? Mine was definitely Dr. Chef. Um, and that's just because of how gentle and generous and loving he is. And again, I just, that's kind of always the person that I wanted to be. Um, and he's just kind of an optimist. Like he knows that things maybe aren't the best and maybe this isn't the most ideal situation, you know, but I'm here and we'll be fine. How did you feel when we had those revelations about his past and his race and, and what the future of his race is and his family? Can you talk to us a little bit about that, about the war and what he had to do in it and his family and how that connected with you? Dr. Chef comes from a race who has essentially battled itself into extinction. I believe he shared at one point that there are, were, I think, less than 300 of them around the galaxy. And I thought that was terrifying um, because he, through his sharing did speak to how similar his race was to humanity and how, you know, we are equally violent um, and how we would rather fight than talk. And so you get to know Dr. Chef um, and he shares a story of how, you know, he went to war and his daughters went to war and he actually ended up having to end the life of one of his daughters to end her suffering. And I was very sad um, because obviously I like the character and, you know, it was very 
surreal. It was like, oh, you did that? Okay. But at the same time, I could see that he had found peace. You know, obviously it brought, it brought him great pain and great sorrow to reminisce on those memories um, and maybe even a little bit of horror looking back into some of those, you know, more graphic elements of his story. But he was very determined to live his life in the present and, you know, just to be the best person that he could be. And I thought that it was just kind of a wonderful thing to see that certain piece um, that I thought was pretty evident in his character. At the risk of steering the conversation, one of the things with Dr. Chef that really resonated with me was a story he told about when he first started traveling. Being in the parts shop when humanity was inducted into the, I want to say Commonwealth, whatever they call their Galactic Federation. I think it's actually Galactic Commonwealth. Okay, when humanity is inducted into the Galactic Commonwealth. What specific... So hang on, yeah, so he he was talking about the the human in the part shop sorting the junk when humanity is inducted into the Galactic Commonwealth and how the human was so excited and so crying. And he says, what was it? It's now I matter. To which Dr. Chef says to the human, you've always mattered. And the human says, yes, but now they know I matter. For me, that says a lot about who Dr. Chef was. Can you pick out a single Dr. Chef moment that for you makes his character? Near the end, when he's teaching Oha on how to chop uh, vegetables, and he's, I can't remember, what was it he tried? Was it a tomato? I believe it was a type of root. Yeah, I don't know. But he he was basically sitting at the table, helping him, you know, chop vegetables. And he had eaten something for the very first time. Um, And he was so happy. Like, he was just so evidently overjoyed that he had this moment with Ohan. And I feel like um, that spoke to the earlier scene where he was feeding and nurturing everyone. Um, That's just how he saw everyone. Um, especially the people he loved. And Ohan may have been part of his crew, and he may have felt a certain degree of loyalty and love already, but he was also someone he didn't really know a whole lot, just because of how isolated Ohan made himself. Dr. Chef always set Ohan a place at the table, Yeah, even though Ohan would never accept it, and Chef knew Ohan would never accept it. He always set Chef. He always set Ohan a place at the table because he wanted Ohan to know he was welcome. I think that he was able to take that first step into. I don't want to say socialization, but maybe experiencing life. Um, because maybe he knew deep down that he was, you know, with someone who showed him that he mattered. Just kind of bringing it back to that. By the way, Leslie, just as as an aside, it's a spine root. Gotcha. Thank you, Boz, for being the one who's willing to look that up. Encyclopedia (laughs) Bozotica. I would have to say 
as, as cheesy as this sounds, I actually really enjoyed Rosemary. Not because she was my favorite character as far as emotions go, but because I really could empathize with her. She was so scared and so nervous, and she was so desperate to get a life and to have some semblance of peace and of safety and discovering that she had built this life with people that she could count on and realizing that when she had to to tell her secrets was really powerful for me. And I feel like in her story is is the story that everyone, no matter what you've done, has has someone or has the, the ability or the right or the what 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 have you to have that sort of connection so i talked a little bit earlier about what is clearly my favorite rosemary moment the bit with the spiders where she's talking them down can you talk a little bit about your favorite rosemary moment that moment that kind of encapsulated for you who she was and made you love her or at the very least that moment that kind of solidified that for you i have two of them but I'm going to, to, to say them both because I think they kind of in some ways encapsulate themselves into one moment. When she first stepped onto the ship, she was so leery. She was twitchy. She was ready to run. She was like, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know if I should be here. Like, what is this? And everyone kind of put her a little bit at ease. Um, and, you know, the whole you're, you're you know, welcome to, to go on this mission with us thing. So jump from there to her telling them about her life and what happened to her. She was scared then too, but it was a different kind of scared. Now she had something to lose. Now she had these people's respect that she didn't want to lose. And so the fact that they just accepted what she said so openly and so readily and her, her very emotional reaction to that of, of relief and, and pain and love and like all of those things rolled together I think really was a huge transition from her. Rosemary is one who has a hidden family history. And we know that from the very beginning, even if we don't necessarily know what it is right away. Can you talk to us a little bit about what Rosemary's family history was, how it shaped her as a character, and maybe how you felt about those revelations and how she and others reacted to them? Rosemary always seemed to me kind of to be a very, uh, she had a lot of thought. She had a lot of deep thought and she had a lot of conviction over what was right and wrong. Um, And she also seemed very peaceful. So in revealing that her family had such a big part to play in a war that was tearing things apart and and the the, the captain of a ship even had had a girlfriend at play in these events, she was very, apprehensive that people were going to hate her because of what her family had done, even though she herself was her own person. But those, those feelings of, of not feeling like you belong, uh, not feeling like she belonged to rather with her family led her to, to strike out on her own and striking out on her own sort of led her to become her own person. And so it was really fascinating to watch her sort of make her own path. But in part of, making your own path, you also kind of have to own what's behind you. Otherwise it doesn't really work because stuff comes back. And of course stuff came back, but having her gain the ability to talk to people about it and those reactions to mostly be, you know, what the fuck your family 
but also you're not your family. You're this person that I've been like traveling with or that I'm in love with or that, you know, I hired that I respect. So why would we kick you out for something you didn't do? But like, why wouldn't you tell us? Those kinds of reactions were what she ended up getting and were what really launched her to, to sort of get free of, of her history as, as terrible and terrifying as it was. I'm going to actually say, speaking of the captain's girlfriend, I'm actually going to say her pay. And I say that because she's this very, she does what she has to do. She's fighting this war and she's involved in this war and she clearly has strong feelings about her crew, about the people that are in this war and about the captain. And she does what she has to do in order to keep them safe. And I just feel that her emotions are are in the right spot. Really stuck out to me when she sent the captain an actual paper letter and everybody's like, wow, this is paper. This is really, really expensive. And it just goes to show that she's willing to... It showed me that she wasn't this war-hardened or battle-hardened person, but that she actually had a soft spot and was willing to do what it took to make sure that everybody around her and the people that she valued were were appreciated. For me, I think the moment that really defines her as a character is the moment that her and the captain are... They're in bed and... She, who's actually in combat, and, and albeit not as necessarily an intentionally frontline fighter, is in combat a lot, just because of the nature of her job. But she's worried about Ashby. She doesn't like that Ashby's taken the contract he has, because she knows who Ashby is, and she's worried that Ashby isn't going to be safe. And I liked that, the idea that somebody who is is a warrior, is concern, can love a man like Ashby, a, a consummate pacifist like Ashby, enough to be genuinely terrified for him when he's going into a significantly, theoretically at least, significantly less dangerous situation than she does daily. Can you talk about what moment for you solidified pay in your mind as that favorite character is that character that resonated with you and what was that moment you just did <laughs> um, i apologize me, yeah to me that was what really stuck out and and it became a you know when we were talking about it in the when the story is going on it's always captain ashby so worried about her for those exact reasons and he has those internal thoughts and she comes out and says like i i don't like that you're doing this i i think that to me said a lot well since i saw your thunder a little bit then do you want to talk a little bit about pay and ashby's relationship the the taboo nature of it the opposite uh, opposite to track nature of it can you want to talk a little bit about their relationship and how it ultimately unfolds i also got some more hidden messages there too and it made me think like okay yeah maybe her race is a little bit prudish but i wonder if part of her their relationship being a secret is because of her job and i got the feeling that ashby didn't give a shit he he's happy to tell the world but he's doing it for her so their relationship is this I don't want to say secret love affair because as we come to find out later in the story, there are trusted friends on her crew that know as well as, well, Ashby's crew knows. It's the fact that they're willing to go through these charades is, to me, it 
it's interesting. I find it a little bit, I'm trying to find the right word here. I don't want to say shameful or, or that anybody's ashamed of their relationship, but I kind of get the feeling that they're together but we're not telling anybody about it and to me just picturing it that way kind of brought out a an innocence to their relationship that's clearly not something to be trifled with it's clearly a deep emotional relationship that still felt kind of like we were in high school with the whole i'm not telling anybody sort of situation so how did you feel at the end when she reveals that she's taking some time off and she's taking that vacation on the Wayfarer, and she doesn't care who knows. I, I felt happy for them. It was I, I felt like it was his next step in their relationship of them of her being like, you know what, fuck all of these standards and everything. I really just want to be with you, and that I thought it was sweet. Would you think it would be a fair comparison to liken that dynamic to a closeted gay couple coming out? Um. Not having any experience with that, I I can only hypothetically say I I I can see that, but because that's definitely that's the feeling question. I got. I can see why, but I've I don't really. I mean, of course, I know gay people, um, but I've never been privy to, you know, how that feels or been told a whole lot about that dynamic. I, I see where you're coming from. I just don't think I have the experience to make that comparison or to, to draw those parallels. Well, if anyone out there is listening who feels like they can chime in on that, get in touch with us, okay? If you send us a message or something, we'll happily play it in the next cast, yeah, all right? I would be really interested to know, because that's, that's an interesting thought process that I'd really, really be interested to know as well. So much like Fairy, I'm going to have to say Rosemary, though for somewhat different reasons. I'll circle back to when she was talking about how she first entered the ship, because I think that has definite merit. When you first see her, she is a bundle of nerves, but at the same time, she's also a bundle of courtesy. You see her very polite to the AI. You see her as an intelligent, and this of course happens later, you see her as an intelligent person who is willing to research, who is willing to do what's possible and what's necessary for the crew. So she not only has that sagacity, that intelligence, but she's also very much willing to do what's necessary in order to help whoever needs it. And you pointed it out too, Chris, back in the scene, in which she was translating, or rather interpreting, for the hostels. And that's something else that I connect with her on, her love for languages. I love languages as well, and she definitely shows that throughout the book. Okay, pause. I, I do definitely want to talk to you about a couple of these things, but... A quick digression for me and for anyone out there who's listening, I tend to use the term interpret and translate interchangeably. You seem to suggest that they're not quite the same thing. Do you want to explain that a little bit to us? So to interpret means to have an exchange. In each case, you're having an exchange. But to interpret, you use that when it's verbal. When you're having a verbal exchange from one language to another, that's when you're interpreting. When you're translating, it's more along the lines of writing. 
You translate documents. You translate textbooks. You translate letters, etc. So translation correlates with writing. Interpreting correlates with more of the verbal aspect. Okay, I must admit my brain immediately went to it's the difference between libel and slander. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> Except you're not defaming anybody, so. Well, theoretically. <laughs> you could be. Well, yes. You could be yeah. on behalf of someone else. Okay, Boz. So, w- without going into too much detail, because we did cover Rosemary's story quite a bit, do you yeah. want to talk about how Rosemary's family relationships and interactions with the crew resonated with you? Her, The revelation about her family and how, that, how her friends reacted to that, and then, I guess, later on, her connection with Sissix and with the chef and all the rest of them. Do you want to talk to me a little bit about Rosemary and how she how her interpersonal connections did or didn't make this character for you? Well, at first, she was palpably distant, and for good reason. She didn't want to establish herself as the type of person who would, let's say, be found out and thus be hated. She didn't want to be reviled by anyone. You could tell, too, throughout the book, I remember one scene in which... They had asked her a question, actually a series of questions, and she answered them with the aside of truth, lie, truth, lie. You could see that swinging back and forth. It was kind of fascinating to see. She was trying to protect her identity, and again, for good reason. I completely the, forgot they did that bit with the truth, lie, after each statement. It was awesome. It was awesome. <laughs> completely forgot it they did great. that. Thank you for reminding me. I loved that. <laughs> Well, in the mere fact that she told Jenks about herself and how she became a nervous wreck. In fact, I didn't think that she was going to do it, but she did. And hats off to her for doing that. I think that was very brave. And something that we, since we were talking about it previously, it's something that we really don't see in literature, at least that much. The truth tends to come out later on. But with her, it actually came out pretty quickly when the news rolled out and her father, well, was found out. And for understandable reasons, because there was nothing that she could hide. Now, she could have hidden it from Jinx, but that's what she said. She said, you know, there's nothing I can do about this now. It's too late. They found me out. I might as well just do it. Yeah, they saw her reactions and her needing to take that moment, and she knew that it was the point where she couldn't lie anymore. But She wasn't okay with lying anymore. Right. But I still say hats off to her, because were she clever and in a conniving sort of way, she could have actually lied and she could have made up something perhaps elaborate, contrived though it may be, but she didn't. And she had told Jinx and then later told everybody else. And you could see the terror. You could see the ex- the, the want for acceptance. And I really like that. I thought that was very, very powerful. And later on, she shows, again, demonstrably so, she shows herself in that light in that she's very loyal. She's very committed. She's very strong-minded when she does the research in order to rescue Corbin. And I think that's actually, no, 
that is one of my favorite scenes that depicts Rosemary because it takes hours to research. And that's where we connect as well. I like research as long as I don't have to write a paper about it. I can write papers, but I don't like writing papers. <laughs> but anyway, I, I like the process of learning. I like the process of uh, knowledge, but it takes time. And I could appreciate and understand how much time it took. And that time, that commitment, that dedication is wonderful. And I really like that about her. That's why she and I could connect because I, I just could resonate. We had a couple of things in common. I don't have a lot to add there. Uh, thank you for sharing that, Boz. You're welcome. It's my turn. And actually, I'm, I'm going to talk about a character who's not involved in my favorite plot line or my favorite episode. In fact, she's the only character who's gotten relatively short shrift in this conversation. Because she doesn't have the big dramatic moments. She doesn't get the big, exciting backstory reveals or anything like that. She's just enthusiastic, warm, fun, funny, a ball of chaotic engineering energy. And that's Kizzy. Kizzy is my favorite character in this entire book because it's just pure, unbridled acceptance and optimism boiled down into this person. And I just love her connections with with Jenks, with Rosemary, with Dr. Chef. I love how when when we first see her, she's making up her own lyrics to that song and just singing over and over again that her socks match her hat. <laughs> and then Jenks is explaining to her that this is a song that was banned on this planet because it was blamed for starting a civil war I was like well if they're really the anti the man then they should be all on board you know they should be completely fine with me making up my own lyrics to their song and i love that and i love that she gets she does get her one moment she gets that moment where she's on pay's ship undoing the explosives and how everyone's like super tense but she knows she can do this and then I love that you can see how how the crew connects with her, how worried everyone else is while she's over there doing that. And the captain is sitting and staring out the window. And Jenks comes over with the giant tub of screws and just dumps them out on the floor. And the guy's like, what are you doing? And he's like, I, my best friend sorts all of her, uh, just throws all of her screws into this giant tub. And we're going to sit here and sort them so that when I need them in the future, I can actually find the right size and shape and make. And you're going to help me. And it's like, well, why are we doing this now? It's because my best friend is over there disarming these bombs and risking her life. And I can't do anything about it. So I'm going to do this because it beats sitting and staring out the window. And that's why you're going to help me. And that to me, just right there is like, this is what she means to the crew. She doesn't get the big reveal. She doesn't get the huge dramatic moment other than, I guess, finding the bombs. But even that 
compared to some of the other stuff is a little anticlimactic. She's just kind of there fixing shit when it goes wrong and being that person that is just always there for everyone else. She's that little person in everyone's life. So since you had questions for us, I have one for you. Please. So you said that Kizzy is the one that fixes everything that goes wrong. Uh, She's also the one that really does sort of explain a lot of these concepts to us through well to rosemary um so us through rosemary Mm -hmm. what do you think the crew would look like and how do you think the dynamic would change if kizzy wasn't there so that's actually really difficult i still think they'd care about each other but the crew would be missing that sort of that bond that fun there wouldn't be that excited energy in everything there wouldn't be those little touches, the happy tea and the sad tea. Or bo- is it happy tea and boring tea? Yes. It's happy tea and boring yeah. tea. There wouldn't be the curtains with the jellyfish pattern that Rosemary thought was a little too bright and a little too much, but didn't have the heart to tell Kizzy about it. So she just kind of grew to love them. There wouldn't be the giant bowl of screws in engine in the by the engine there wouldn't be the box of fix bots going untouched and collecting dust that she would then that she then used at the end and felt so bad about leaving them on the shelves that she started knitting them hats there wouldn't be that sort of friendly loving warmth and excitement in the ship they'd love each other they'd care about each other but I do think that Kizzy is a social catalyst. A more ener- in the same way that Dr. Chef is, just more energetically. Dr. Chef makes sure everyone feels welcome. Kizzy makes you welcome whether you want to be or not. Because, and she does, she loves everybody. The self-modding weapon makers... You know, she knew she like these were Kizzy's friends. Um, I keep forgetting her name. Who comes and helps with Lovelace? Pepper. 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 I love Pepper. I just keep forgetting her name. Pepper is Kizzy's friend. Sizzik's family knows Kizzy. <laughs> it's just I love that. Like, so everyone knows like- Kizzy. Everyone loves Kizzy. I'm convinced if you stopped off on any planet in the Commonwealth, somebody would know Kizzy. And they'd be invited out to lunch, and she would get, what was it, um, ludicrously hot shrimp puff dust on them, or whatever it was. I, I love at the end that that Jinx gives her a tub of the seasoning for her ludicrously hot shrimp puff things. Because he needed to express his gratitude to her, but, well, thanks to the issue with Lovey and the body, he has no money. And now she's so happy to receive it, and she's genuinely touched, and she's like, I'm going to put it on everything. And you just know later that day, like, already the engine is literally crusted in it. There's no way it wasn't. (laughs) And that's how they figured out a different kind of fuel. (laughs) 
Okay. Um, I do want to talk about one thing. I want to get everyone's thoughts on one thing um, before we go into final thoughts. Corbin and Ohan. That's all I'm going to say, and I want to get people's thoughts. The first thing that came into my mind was, oh, that fucker. And then... Do you want to fill in the listeners who maybe haven't read this or might not read What happened with Corbin and Ohan? So, Ohan was, for all intents and purposes, dying throughout the whole book. He had reached a point in his life where the virus that let him see the universe... um, and make his calculations for navigation, um, had taken him to the final descent um, of his life where he would essentially die. Um, It was called, was it the waning? The waning. Yeah, the waning is that dying process. Um, And so we're at the part where he has navigated them out of the tunnel through... um, seizures and restarts he's literally working off of being injected several times by Dr. Chef so that he can keep going and afterwards you know obviously he collapses and he is dying and they have this cure that he has refused to take um, for various reasons Um, I mentioned earlier that it was sacrilegious he believed that he was meant to die and he didn't really have kind of, he didn't really have intentions of doing anything other than dying. And Corbin said, I'm sorry, but we've lost too much. They have lost too much and I'm not going to let you die. And so this guy's about to die and he injects him with the cure. And so when next you see them, um, they are walking into the kitchen. And the captain is hanging out with Dr. Chef. And in come, comes Ohan, who is being supported by Corbin. And somehow Ohan doesn't hate Corbin. And the next thought after, oh, that fucker when you asked the question, was, say what? Um, So I think that I'm still very confused about how that whole thing happened. Um, But... Well, you summed it up rather well. I think that he really didn't want to die. And I think that he is happy that he has a life to live, that he can live for a long time, you know, barring any unforeseen accidents or situations. I don't know. I think that maybe the gratitude is bigger than the taking away of the choice. Maybe they had conversations that we weren't privy to. I have no idea. All right, because there is a little bit of a jump between when that happens and when we see him in the dining room. Yeah, I just... That happened, and then the other thing happened, and I, I'm i kind of lost in the in-between, but I that might be the point. I do want to bring up a point. So we do refer to him as he, which I do believe was correct in the be- at the end. Yes. But throughout most of the book, he is actually a they, because throughout most of the book, 
they actually consider his virus, which is admittedly a, a lethal virus, they actually consider themselves to be a pair. It's two entities in one body. They, they view the virus as a gift from, you know, their god or gods. It's, it's holy. It's not to be tampered with. It short, it gives them such amazing gifts, even if it takes a horrendous toll in return. But they view the virus as its own entity. And I think part of the reason for that is because the virus shapes the way they think. Not just how they share the universe, but how they think. They literally see the virus as a separate being, but that the two together are a joined single individual that is a pair at the same time. So for most of the book, he is a they. And that's what was taken. He viewed curing the virus as murder. Which my thought is, well, isn't the virus killing you? Why isn't that murder? But again, I'm not infected with the virus and I don't have a lot of his cultural baggage. Well, and I'm wondering if, you know, and probably to some extent, Ohan as an individual was probably afraid to live his life without his other. You know, with without mm-hmm. that other... You know, it's it's just someone who has been with you your entire life is going to be taken from you one way or another. Um, but is that worse than you and they being taken away from people who can't afford to lose anyone else? And I think that that's what Corbin was trying to explain. Like, I'm doing this to you because... You just can't die. I'm not going to let you die. They can't lose another person, and everyone already hates Corbin, so what has he got to lose? They're not going to... But also... <laughs> they, they can't fire him for at least a year. How how much of that do you actually think was for the crew? How much of it do you suppose maybe was Corbin not wanting to lose Ohan? I think that's an interesting question. I'd actually like to ask that question to everybody, so let's table that for just a minute. And TJ, what were your reactions to Corbin and Ohan? I'm with Leslie, I think, and and my thoughts actually touch a lot on what we're tabling, um, so I don't think we're going to table it as much as... <laughs> <laughs> I tried. <laughs> um, but I think that it comes down to when uh, Sissix did what she did for Corbin, I think... At least if it was me, I, I try to put myself in his position. And uh, as a crewmate, you're dying over something that could be cured and you're having a really long life. And, you know, I just went through a life changing experience and it shook my whole foundation. And I'm for better or worse, I'm still who I am. So I'm going to do what my crew did for me, for you, and give you that opportunity to experience a life-changing event and make the best of it. I think that Ohan didn't really have a choice in the matter, and and I don't think that Corbin would have done it if the situations were reversed, if 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 he wasn't ever captured and Sissix did what she did. I think that Corbin would have just stayed in his 
in his little lab and and been on Ashby's side of it, well, it's their way. It's none of my business. But I I, I honestly think that his experience played a lot into how he reacted in in that choice to give Ohan the cure. So you think this was his way of him protecting his crew, his surrogate family? Yes. When it happened, I was very unhappy, actually. Not because I wanted Ohan to die, but because I felt like Corbin was was really sort of violating uh, Ohan's culture. And culture and, and beliefs, I think, are very sacred in, in, to, the, to the person who is following them. On the same token, I recognize that cultures can have abusive streaks in them or, or practices that are actively harmful to the people who are involved. And so... I thought it was a really good way of highlighting the the thing that comes up in in logic classes of of sovereignty. You know, what how much power do we and should we have over someone else's life and way of living? I thought that Corbin had good reasons to do what he did uh, because of what TJ said. I think that he got really shaken up by Sussex and what you know, he had experienced with her. I also sort of wonder if he was just kind of, he's, he's very blunt and very sort of very abrupt. Corbin? Yes, very Corbin. <laughs> and so to me, it was just like, you know what, what why, why am I bothering with this? Like, we have this thing. Why, why aren't we using it? Why aren't we doing the, like, logical thing here? But I think that it was a really deep look at culture versus family and, and different beliefs intersecting in a, in a very powerful way. I don't know that I would have ever done what Corbin did, but I am not in that situation. So I can't really say one way or another. And I was obviously very, very, very happy that Ohan was still alive. He was another of, of character that I really enjoyed. So I, it was an odd mix of happy in indignant sad but he wasn't indignant so then i was confused because i was like well i can't really feel indignant over someone who doesn't feel like indignant for themselves that's putting emotions in their face and i don't want to do that so it was a very odd reaction for me that didn't really ever quite end up leaning one way or another i have another question um before we hear chris's take on it okay so after he isn't as indignant as one would think he was, do you think that that is because he realized and was grateful for his new life? Um, or do you actually think that the virus really was that influential over his decision to live or die? I don't think there's any way for us to know. And I think that's part of the charm of the story is that we don't know. He could have just been very, very grateful, you know, for his life and for his extended chances of living. But it also could have been, you know, the virus. Or maybe it was just a freedom from the culture that that virus represented, kind of. Because once you're free of that, you don't have that to cling on to anymore. So you have no reason to be mad in some ways. Because you, you no longer have access to the thing that made you, you in that particular society. So it's it's really a nebulous question. And I think that making it nebulous and making it unclear really adds a lot of power to it because we then get to go think about all the ways that it could have been interpreted and all of the results that it may or may not have had. 
I think that Ohan, the joined version of Ohan, was... I mean, not happy he was dying. He wasn't happy he was dying, but he had accepted it as part of his life, as his, his almost his religious duty. That being said, whether he was having regrets in the last moments or not, we can't know because we don't. We're not privy to Ohan's thoughts. But I think part of it is realizing at the last minute, it's I don't want to die, and I'm going to call back to for those who have seen it and for those who haven't. I'm sorry. Um, a BoJack Horseman episode. Because that's what's coming into my head is the poem, the view from halfway down. And I'm not going to get into that because that's not what we're talking about. But it's basically about how it's easy to embrace death when you're standing on top of an overpass. It's easy to accept death. It's easy to welcome death at first until it's actually starting to happen. The view from halfway way down changes your perspective on everything and I wonder if that's part of what's happening is he, he got to have his view from halfway down and fortunately survived the experience so I think the version of Ohan that's around now is happy he's alive yeah I thought it was super powerful that even just between before and after the fact that he was letting his fur grow out even though you know, he'd been told he could shave again. Like, he was so, just definitely, you know, kind of, I mean, turning a new leaf and just kind of going at life from a completely different angle. Just, I've never done this before. Show me how. Indeed. And then he got real food. <laughs> not nutrient paste. And he liked it. He did. I can't imagine that. I can't imagine going from what something I have to assume tastes like the world's blandest baby food to actual food. Oh, that was so life-changing and so wonderful. Corbin and Ohan, they are two very different individuals. As I said before, Corbin is, well, I'm going to say was. Because I dare say that his mindset changed after a little while. So Corbin was this grumpy, even aggressive person. Ohan is this quiet, phlegmatic, just really calm, melancholy kind of person. And what Corbin does, I would say, is subject to debate. Surely Ashby became very angry with him. Certainly that was the case. He yelled and raved, raged and raged, but it didn't matter to Corbin. I regard Corbin as, I'm not going to say a hero, but I'm going to say that I admired Corbin for doing what he did because he saved this, he saved Ohan. Even though Ohan didn't want to be saved, at the end, you could tell that he was enjoying his time. You could tell that Corbin did the right thing. And it presented such an ethical issue because at one point in the book, the question was posed. Who was actually talking? Was it Ohan? Or was it and I'm sorry, I don't know what the term is, but 
the other. The I've been going with virus because that's how the book describes it. No, it's, it. it's the whisperer. It's the whisperer. The whisperer. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, it's the whisperer. The whisperer is a virus. But yeah, you're right. They're calling. They call. It's called the whisperer. Yep. So who was it? Was it Ohan or was it the whisperer talking? And Corbin pretty much assumes that perhaps he perhaps assumes it's the latter, and makes that clear cut decision. So. I admire Corbin for that. My last question on a long way to a small angry planet. Happy tea or boring tea? Definitely happy. Also happy. 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 I'm on the happy tea train. All right. Thank you, guys. Let's get some quick little final thoughts and your ratings, and we can move on to Grave Peril. Long way to a small angry planet is definitely one of the better if not one of the best books that I've read in the category of, of comfort read. Uh, it's like getting hugged by a book and there's enough tension and enough character depth to really get my, my brain engaged, but there's enough fuzzies to get the rest of me engaged. I rated it five stars. I have read and enjoyed the sequel, although I did not reread it when I reread the, the first one for the club. And I definitely enjoyed both books, and would highly recommend it to anyone who asked. The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, for me, was presented in various ways. And I'm talking in terms of the characters and in terms of the dialogue. Each and every character differed in scope, something I said from the beginning. From Kizzy's buoyant, bubbly personality to Rosemary's very academic pursuits. And again, just to underscore this, I related to Rosemary... Not really because of the research, but because of her pursuit of knowledge. And I love that about her. I loved Kizzy's really funny personality. In fact, I think on one or even more than one occasion, I laughed out loud because Kizzy was just so funny. And the narrator, by the way, if anybody's reading it in audio, does an outstanding job doing this. Really, really does well. And I mentioned my rating before, but I'll say it again. It... Sci-fi is really not my thing, but I found this a really nice read, and I gave it a three-star rating. I don't know what else I can say that we haven't discussed. Again, it was very good. Um, just, <laughs> <laughs> just all around, it was good. I definitely will read the sequel when I need something that will make me feel good. In you know, like one of those times that probably one of those really shitty months will be a great time for the sequel four stars i kept saying a small way um for like oh i do that too tj would ask me like so what were you what are you reading a small way to a no that's not right i think that the long way to a small angry angry planet was a fantastic book i did rate it four stars simply because i don't know if i was ready for that like montage of things that happened um i i mean i was definitely ready for the feel goods which i most definitely appreciated um but i think i expected there to be a more solid plot and i'm not unhappy with my with my experience i think that i might actually raise my rating um, because the more that I think about just the general 
like messages in the book and the characters. Like I'm very impressed with how delicately crafted those interactions were. And I would absolutely recommend it to people. And I am already planning on reading the next one. Awesome. For my sake, I can't agree with Fairy Moore. This was a giant hug of a book, and I adored it. Um, yes, I'll be reading the sequel, and just unequivocally, five out of five stars. This one's one that's going to stick with me for a good long time, and I'm very happy about that. Let's move on to Grave Peril, the Dresden Files Book three. For many of us, this is the point when the series starts becoming something less of a guilty pleasure and something we're actually kind of proud to admit. For other people, it still takes another volume or so. Let's see where everyone lands. Let's get some initial thoughts. So I think that Grave Peril, especially coming after Full Moon, it feels almost like a different author wrote it. A lot of the problems of the first two books either go away or are supplanted by some very interesting concepts. Like in Grave Peril, you get the barbed wire wrapped around your spirit. So you get another element of you know the the psychological damage comes into it and just how that can affect you you get the real first sampling of a plot that carries over in the war with the red court being begun and it really is a sense of okay this is actually starting to heat up and and i feel like there's more substance here i feel that harry himself is developing you get introduced to michael you get introduced to a character that the previous couple of books it's clear that harry is the king on the block he is the most powerful character you interact with with michael you get the sense that harry is not the most powerful character on the block and he recognizes that with what michael does uh, him being a knight of the cross, Harry and Michael have to team up to take on. In the very beginning, he has to he has to seek help to take on the ghost of Agatha Hagglethorn, for example. And it just this is where the series really starts up. And I I really this is the part where I say, dude, just get through the first two books because this book actually feels like the beginning of something good. As a book, it definitely feels like an in-between to me. I feel some of that earlier kind of writing, but I also saw a lot of good things. A lot of, I want to say improvements, but that's not the right word. I I just want to maybe say development. I, I saw Jim Butcher developing and becoming more invested in who Harry was and then building on who Harry was and using him as a bridge to everyone else in the world. I thought that it was a really good, I don't want to say jumping off place, because I'm one of those weird people that has to absolutely start a series from the beginning. And I feel like, I don't think I paid enough attention in book two, so I still felt like (laughs) I was missing something. And I may, God help me, Go back and read it again. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm so sorry. No. Um, It's... I mean, I I like the book, and 
it's hard for me to think of this book on its own because I do see it as kind of that link to the rest of this series. And I think to myself, oh, wow, I cannot believe how many people I forgot. And I cannot believe how many details I forgot that were super important to the reasons why these things happened. So I really enjoyed kind of just getting back into that world. And I really enjoyed getting to know everyone again. Uh, Michael is definitely one of my favorites because he's just so good and noble and knightly. But he's also superhuman and... You know, you see him doubting himself and doubting what he's doing in some moments. And I think, to me, that that speaks to real faith. Is not, you know, when everything is going well, but when you really have to make those decisions. And I am incredibly happy that we're going through this series again because I am looking forward to the book. Uh, the new book coming out this year, and I two, don't actually. think two of them. Holy cow! So uh, yeah, we get I, one this summer, and then we get one in September. I I don't think that I would appreciate them as much. I mean, I'd appreciate them because I want to know what happens, but I think that this reread um, will help me appreciate them more. I just like them. Uh, I like it. I like it as both. I've only read like I haven't. This isn't a reread for me. And because I know it's a series, maybe that's why I'm not, like, really truly missing anything that I feel like there's not, like, a huge gap. I didn't get any sense of something being so different that it jarred me. I guess I'm viewing these, to borrow the phrase that we used earlier, sort of like a a television program. Each book is, they're linked together, but they're kind of their own episodes I guess I don't know I that's kind of how I feel about them I liked the events that unfolded in this book I liked the characters I I did see uh, I agree about the uh, character development um seeing Harry you know sort of undergoing this slow change I mean it's not a super super quick change but it's there and I see it and I don't know I honestly I kind of feel like I, I I read these books and when I do I can just sort of kick back and relax and read them and there's times where I go girl why are you doing that or why are you saying that and a lot of times I'm literally laughing out loud because of something that the characters do and I don't know, the relationships, I just kind of like the whole thing. My goodness. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it because, like Leslie, I remembered details that I had forgotten. I didn't realize Mr. was so large. Maybe that was just something I overlooked. (laughs) I also had the pleasure of reading the exchanges between... Dresden and Michael, as they are in the car, and how Dresden's religious fervor was practically non-existent, and how Michael, pious, wise Michael, had tried to talk him into 
being more faithful. And you could tell the long-lasting friendship between those two. You could tell that they've had a similar conversation like that before. And I had laugh-out-loud moments on more than one occasion when I heard the exchanges. And I say heard because I listened to the audiobook, and it was so well done. Very, very well narrated. I also liked the descriptions I like the prose. We're talking about food, the cold cuts, the soda. He just makes you want the food. And I remember even from my first reading, I think the bar was McAnally's. McAnally's. I remember. Yeah. Well, everyone I, just calls it Max, but it's McAnally's. Yeah, if I remember correctly. Steak sandwich and fries. And you see these things plopping into the book. These regular particulars of the world, the elements just appearing this way and that, Bob, Mr., and they just become familiar things. And one thing I have to comment on relates to the ghost of Agatha Hagglethorn. So first of all, what a name. Second of all, (laughs) my goodness, you know, I had forgotten her story. And when I read that, such a sympathetic chord was struck. I felt so sorry for her. I felt so sorry for the abusive relationship that she was in and so sorry for her daughter because it was such a real kind of story, a story that perhaps did actually occur at one point or another and how she became insane, how she was trying to hush all of those babies. It was something that was sad, but something that was very, very much profound. So I liked it. In the first book, Jim Butcher created juggling balls. And in the second book, he dropped them all over the floor and stepped on them. (laughs) And finally, in the third book, we actually get to see them lift off and, and juggle through the air. I definitely enjoyed this book. I liked the darkness in it. From the very beginning, you have a woman who who has been through a really, really shit life, who is driven to insanity in her afterlife, trying to to, to hush, uh, hypothetically anyway, all all these babies. And it gets darker. And it's just, there's so much, it's, it's a very narrow view in the sense that it all comes from Dresden. But the plot itself is very wide, and it's really hard. I usually have a really hard time with books that have super big picture views. But that usually means that I end up reading plots that are very linear and very shallow in some ways. This is not one of those. You have really big events that are kicking off here. You have people who Justin is, is failing. Murphy gets really hurt. Um, and, and, and he actually has to take out someone that he thought he finished with already. So I think that as other people have said, there's lots of character development here. I would say that it's among my favorites. I wouldn't quite say that it is my favorite, but I think that we get to see the growth of Jim Butcher. We get to see the growth of overarching plot and 
those tiny details that everyone else has mentioned, they're so prevalent here and they have such a place here because it brings everything else to life. You are not going to feel like somebody torturing ghosts with barbed wire is real. You're not going to feel that sympathy unless you have the details like the steak sandwich and soda, like the huge cat and the talking skull. Well, not the talking skull, but those those little things ground everything else in such a profound profound way so that the emotions and so that the plot can really do their jobs i would consider this a bridge novel i would consider this a, a launching novel not a jumping off point because i do think that that one and two sort of give a foundation so that we've been familiar with this world already but i think that this is sort of the bridge between the story's introductions and the story's successes and, and, and flights as, as a series. So I definitely, definitely had a lot of pleasure in rereading this one. For me, this was the book where it starts all coming together. Some of the problems in his writing are still there. There are some weaknesses in the writing. There's some weaknesses in the characterization. Harry still hasn't learned that he needs to be more upfront with people because when he isn't, it tends to end badly. Is still frustrating. But at the same time, this is where we meet Michael, where we meet Butters. This is where the plot starts becoming a plot, not a monster of the week or monster of the novel sort of thing. The, the vampire court thing really kicks into gear. We meet Thomas and Justine, and I love Thomas and Justine. The best Harry burns down a building so far. Although, admittedly, probably one of the more frightening Harry burns down a building so far. But... For me, my what really solidifies this thing as Jim Butcher's growing as an author is none of these moments. These moments are great, but he had these moments in the last one. In fact, I remember saying that some of the action set pieces, some of the individual moments were already there in the last two books. But it's the character work, the character writing that starts to really pick up and where that really comes into its own is I love the conversation and with Harry and Michael in the very beginning when they're talking about Susan and Michael is trying to convince Harry to admit and say aloud that he loves her. And it's like, this is who these two are. And then of course they get out of the blue beetle, like having this conversation, driving to a murderous ghost and they get out of the blue beetle and walk into the hospital heavily armed you know, Harry with the bag in his teeth, the blasting rod in one hand and the staff in the other. Not to mention they're running from the police. <laughs> oh, of course they're running from the police at this stage. I forgot they were running from the police. So there's so much that this book's already starting to get right. Whereas I feel like Jim Butcher, had he tried this scene in book two, it wouldn't have worked. He wasn't good enough to make this work yet. And I think the reason I can say that with safety is because... He tried to have connections like this with the alphas, and it didn't come off. 
the alphas were supposed to feel a little bit like how Harry and Michael feel now together. And it didn't work. This is the first book that, despite the fact that it's definitely the heaviest book so far, is also the one that feels the warmest. I don't feel like a cold... I don't feel like I'm reading characters anymore. I feel like I'm reading about people. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Absolutely. I will also say that my brain was 100% convinced that the end of Deadbeat was actually in this movie. In this book. I was 100% convinced that this was the, this was the book where we get Butters... And the T-Rex and Polka will never die. Ah, man. And was I can't so disappointed when it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, right. That's not this book. <laughs> yes, because we're like, the hell? <laughs> don't worry. You've got something to look forward to. I mean, no, I don't really know who Butters that... is, but like. <laughs> you should at this point. Butters? I don't think so. No, I don't think so. Butters is introduced in this one. He's the coroner. But he was just the coroner. That's we don't true. really get to meet Butters. Yeah. It doesn't really matter yet. I, I He's just like, the weird polka-obsessed coroner <laughs> who gets a little freaked out at some of what Harry brings in. Or what some of what Murphy brings in, anyway. That's true. He's not a big deal yet. Oh my god, though, does he become one of my favorite characters. 100%. I can't wait. I 100%. can't wait. You will definitely learn more about him later. Yes. Definitely. Just like, I never expected to see this particular faith made manifest. <laughs> no, I love it. Um, but what really struck me is I loved the whole thing with Michael and the sword. And not only is Michael like a big part of this, he's not like this ghost of the week at the beginning to set the stage. Michael and his sword are a driving factor throughout, and I love the lore about... Michael's is Amarakius, right? Yes. I love the lore about Amarakius and having to recover it and, and how it's been made vulnerable by something Harry did. And I love the bits about the dragon. The, the dragon at the party is like, oh my god, I want to know more about this person, and I also really want Harry to kill you. In fact, the series needs more dragons in. I'm just going to say that. The series needs more <laughs> yeah. dragons in it. It has been a glaring lapse up to this point. And if Peace Talks doesn't immediately begin with dragon-on-dragon dragon drama, I'm going to check out. Unsubscribed. Cancel. Return my book. I'm done, Mr. Butcher. Or maybe not. I, I can deal with the whole weird uh, thing that's going on without getting too many spoilers, but... Yeah, no, this was the book that, this stopped being one of those books where it's like, I'm, I'm liking this almost despite its flaws, and became one of those things that I'm just liking. No caveats, no qualifiers. I can still say Harry as a character has a lot of growing to do, and Butcher as an author has a lot of growing to do, but... I don't feel like talking about this book requires me to, yes, this was good, but, and this was good, but this was actually a little troubling, or this didn't age well, or Harry comes off really badly here, and I don't think the author meant him to. 
I don't have to see things like that anymore. Like, even Harry's character flaws feel more deliberate and less unintentional. And I just love Susan, damn it. I love Susan Rodriguez. (laughs) And that whole thing with Susan and the vampires and her leaving at the end. It's like, oh, god damn it. And you kind, it's like you kind of figure it out. Then there's the party. Then there's all that drama. And then they kind of figure it out. And then Susan leaves. It's like, Jesus, man. That's actually one thing that I really enjoyed about this book was the drama. People usually think of drama or angst. Uh, although I don't know that I would, I would classify it quite as angst. But people tend to, to think of those things as really bad, negative things. And they can be when they're overdone. But if emotions and drama are done right and done with skill, they can actually add so much to the story. Heartache and excitement and hope and love and terror and joy and, oh my god, what are you, when are you going to do this thing? Uh, so I think that it really speaks to a book. And it speaks well of a book when its drama adds another layer on top of its plot and really meshes well with what's going on. And this book really did that, especially with Susan. From the very beginning of why won't you admit that you love her to the end where you propose, he proposes and, and, and she leaves. It's just such a roller coaster ride in the best of ways. I'm really excited that we have. Um, somebody that hasn't read through them because this is the point where the story stops feeling episodic and turns more into a long haul plot and I'm really really interested to hear there is like no good ending point like from here on out no no there really isn't I mean each story has a definite end uh I'd argue if you really want to, changes is actually a pretty good stopping point. Yeah. But if you really want to jump off the series, changes actually works as a really good end. Yeah, but you can't end it changes. <laughs> no. But we'll get there. <laughs> no. That is my yeah. absolute favorite Dresden book, and I hope beyond hope that... Um, I mean, if anything, I hope we do a podcast, even if even if the series picks stop, uh, because I, I think I can say that most of us are going to continue rereading them until the new ones come out. Um, and I really, really do at some point want to have an in-depth discussion about changes, because that is my all-time yes. favorite Dresden book. Um, Fair enough. Me too. That's one 12, of those right? scenes, like, I think it's 12, yeah. One of those scenes, just like I had to stop and just weep because it is, it's probably. You wept? A little bit, yeah. (laughs) Where was I? (laughs) I think I told you about it. Oh. I'm pretty sure that I cried, bit my nails, and yelled through 99% of that book. Um, Fair enough. It was one of the most powerful, there's one of the most powerful scenes that I can recall reading in that book. And it just, oh, just thinking about it still breaks my heart. And I really, really want to have a discussion about it with you guys at some point. But I'm really excited to to watch Jessica's grow through the series to see what she thinks of it as a first timer. Because again, all of us are coming at it as sort of an, oh, 
I remember this. Nostalgia is fun. Yeah, and the new perspective, I think, is super cool and super exciting. I think that I'm looking forward to rereading them because in a way I feel like I'm reading them for the first time simply because I was so excited to figure out what happened next that I didn't really take a break between them. Like I read the whole series in like a week and a half. Just one after another after another. So I am so tempted to literally just do that and not wait for your series choices. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I did, 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 did. I've done that. We won't be. I, I I will not be mad at you if that's what you do. But I kind of like that we have one. No, I won't. A Dresden I won't. virgin. <laughs> well, let me let me. I'll just point this out. I'm already on small favor. And I can't. Oh, I'm remember. deliberately doing these month to month. I I tried. I couldn't. <laughs> Fair uh, enough. Uh, and this is uh, this book's a big. The struggle is real. <laughs> I I have been like debating with myself. Like, no, I think that I enjoy having time to think about it. I I think that I'm gonna. Well, maybe speed up before the summer book. Um. But yeah, been... the book that's coming out in like June, I think it is, is like, or not June, actually, I think it's June or July. I think July. it's July 17th. Like, actually, I'm not going to speed up to get to it, but I'm definitely going to read it when it comes out. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm just going to stop where I am in the series, put those down and go forward. I probably will speed up to read that one because I'm going okay. month to month now, but I, I want to... I reread. I read them for the first time like four years ago. No, five years ago now. Uh, yeah, definitely need a refresher. I I do have to say, since we're talking about Michael and Michael is in this book, I I don't think this particular scene is in this book. I mean, it's not really spoiling this series. Um, one of my favorite Michael scenes is when Harry's like, "Holy shit, hellhounds!" and Michael's like, "Harry." Don't swear. And he's like, oh, sorry. Holy shit. Heckhounds. <laughs> no, it was definitely this book. Okay, it was. It was, it was this book. book and that, that made me laugh. Sense. I was like, you still swore, but then you t- you took out the word hell. What the? Like, <laughs> you took out well, In fairness, awesome. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's the word that Michael would have had problem with. <laughs> well, yeah, but still. It was just awesome. The whole thing was just well, like, it's... that made me laugh. Also, another one of my favorite scenes, Harry, let me do the talking. So now we're in jail. (laughs) (laughs) And I I enjoy that. The only reason that's not my favorite um, Michael scene is because, and again, not spoiling anything, is parkour! (laughs) I don't believe you're supposed to actually yell parkour. I think one simply does parkour. Yeah, hey, I don't give you crap about your Latin battle cries. <laughs> <laughs> That's yes. the only reason. That exchange, which comes way later, is the only reason that the scenes you mentioned aren't my favorite Harry Michael well, moments. Well, the way that it comes, like, just in the, the moment in which that exchange was held, and it even better. And sometimes, speaking of parkour, sometimes Leslie and I just out of nowhere, parkour! <laughs> oh, <laughs> Yeah, it's like, uh, I'm just across the house, will yell, parkour! And he's like, what? 
so this one was is this a you know later this is a later one this is you'll you'll get there don't worry and i'm so here's actually my thing because you said you were about to you were probably going to start reading ahead which uh, again understandable no i i was joking well i was partially i said i was keep us posted on whether that stays a joke or not i i will but so here's my question then, because we may not be able to ask this question of you next month. Though I'd love to be able to ask this question of you next month. Where do you think the series is going from here? Up. <laughs> give us a, give us some predictions, or at the very least, what you'd um, like to see happen. Um, well, I'm really interested to know what happens to Susan. Definitely. Um, I will. I mean, I don't know because honestly, I just nine books. Right? Like, I just, I maybe I need to read more of them. I, I don't know. I, I just don't know. I just want to. I want to read more of them. I just want to see what happens everywhere. Like, I want. I don't know. <laughs> That's fair. So actually, I think you do. I have a hard time answering that question too, and I think the simple reason for that is is. As much as I love to speculate in real life, and as much as I love to talk to you guys about these books, I'm not a book theorist. Yeah, I, I don't sit there and think, "Well, I think this is going to happen," or "I, I think this is where they're going." I can I'm honestly kind of say, like going along for the ride. Anything yeah. I could have said would have not been anywhere near. <laughs> Fair. Not with this series. Everything just kind of goes sideways in very good ways. So, you know what's actually really nice about just kind of going along for the ride? Is even if I don't love something, I can't actually be super disappointed because I don't get into my head what I think should happen. So, even if I don't love, like, a finale, I'm never like, oh, it should have happened this way, and this person and this person should have gotten together, and that should have actually been their father, and the box shouldn't have been that guy's soul. It totally should have been this robot. I've done that a couple of times, and interestingly, um, there have been, I think, maybe, maybe once, was when I was really, really into a book, and I, <laughs> I was just, like, continuing reading it, and I'm like, but no, you should do it, well, like, why did you do it that way, it should have, you should have, you know, whatever, but yeah, I'm not, I, I just, sometimes I just don't know, and I'm, I can't really theorize, especially being as that this is only the third book, and I'm just like, I... I need to read more because, like, I just don't know. I want to talk about, like, plot theorists. Oh, my gosh. I was looking for something. Okay, my aunt was, like, obsessed with Game of Thrones last year during the finale. And I was looking for something and, like, came across some it should have ended this ways. And holy mama, those people are vicious. Man. Oh yeah, no. The games, the hardcore Game of Thrones community, the people who are like super, super angry, it's like, okay, I get it. You didn't like the end of the TV show, and don't get me wrong, I saw the end of the TV show. I didn't like it either. But there's a, I'm kind of disappointed with how this ended because, well, as it turns out, the people running the TV show weren't actually as good as we thought they were, and when they weren't adapting. Um, when they weren't adapting Martin's stuff, just really just got progressively worse and worse. But at the same time, 
there's being disappointed and even being upset, and then there's that where the Game of Thrones community is right now. It's like I don't like the last few years. I've been actively ashamed to be a Star Wars fan. I'm really glad I never got involved in the Game of Thrones fandom. It never did it for me. But I, I will say I'm not a plot theorist either, but I have done all of those things for fucking Harry Potter. I, uh, I'll, oh, I'll contain yeah, my... Me too. I, I, uh, the Deathly Hallows. I, uh. I've done it for that. And you know what other one I couldn't help but do it for is uh, Kingkiller. I couldn't help but start speculating about Kingkiller. Uh, yeah. Um, I have to say the first time I read through that, I was more speculative. I, I'm at the point with Kingkiller that I'll get it when I get it. Um, and don't get me wrong, I'm super excited for it. Um, but uh, <laughs> digression. Well, it's hard. Again, I'm not super mad it hasn't come out. But at the same time, it is hard to maintain that excitement for so long. I'm sure when we actually have a finite release date, um, the hype will be real. The hype will come back. I will say this. The people who get super angry at, at um, Rothfuss, it's like, well, I'm not going to read it when it comes out. It's like, yeah, you you're are. on the internet complaining about this book not being out. So many years after the last one came out, I, I don't believe you. I be if you tell me you don't care... If you have to pop in and say, well, he's never going to release the book, and even if he does, I'm never going to read it, and it's been too long. It's like, <laughs> I don't believe you, and I don't believe you because you jumped into this internet discussion to tell me that you didn't care. I do have <laughs> to say, though, that the hype, you know, I, the hype for Dresden never went away. Well, in fairness, the, the last Dresden book was a while ago, but it wasn't... It wasn't almost a decade, and more importantly, it wasn't almost a decade, and in the meantime, we got short stories. A lot of really good ones. Speaking of short stories, um, The Year of Dresden on Jim Butcher's website, uh, he just released a microfiction that takes place uh, involving some of the Bigfoot characters. It's very sweet. If anybody oh, hasn't awesome. read that, you should. Because I love Boulder Shoulders. I have not, actually. Boulder I need to read Shoulders! The well, who's got his name? River Shoulders. River Shoulders. So I know what happened. So it's like, it's something shoulders. It's like, wait, hang on. And then my brain being where it is. Um, so when we were younger, one of the slang terms for a particular, a particular female-oriented garment was over-the-shoulder boulder holder. Yeah, oh. and I guarantee you that's what my mind conflated. It was like it was something shoulder, something shoulder, nature shoulder, boulder shoulder, bras and Bigfoot. Never expected that correlation. <laughs> Dresden's so much about set pieces. What's your favorite scene? The crossing of the Never Never, where his godmother is kind of upon him in an instant, and they have that like weird pseudo face-off when they're in the basement in bianca's basement because it really sets the scene of okay how the fuck am i gonna get out of this and i think that that 
grows hairy throughout the rest of the series. I think that that demonstrates that we're not playing these small time games anymore. I'm in real deep trouble here and Harry has to rely on his sheer determination and his ability to just persevere. And I think that that comes back throughout the rest of the series and I think that this that particular scene was the foundation. When Harry um is being chased by Leah again and he has Bob with him and Bob is like, "Hi Leah." And Harry's just like, "Um don't do that because I'm in real deep shit with her." <laughs> it's just like (laughs) I think Bob's in trouble too though Bob it doesn't address why but Bob can't go back to fairy Bob did something I am really intrigued about the reason why but I don't think he ever said he definitely didn't in this one I'm trying to remember if he ever does say at all but he definitely didn't in this one I have a suspicion as to who he was with when, but I don't think it ever says specifically what. The time when Michael and Dresden were in jail. It just starts out that way, that chapter. Michael goes, can't believe we're in jail. Something like that. And it's (laughs) it's funny because you have that, Again, and, and I talk about this because that's really the relationship between Michael and Dresden. You have that companionship. I mean, even in jail, they're sitting there talking with each other. And it just goes to show you how Michael is, how loyal he is, the willingness he makes to sacrifice everything in order to help Dresden and perhaps on an even larger scale, to help the world. Because that's Michael. He is a knight of the cross. He needs to serve justice where justice needs to be served. And the time afterward, when Dresden encounters Michael's wife, Charity, he describes her as a beautiful woman, but as a woman comparable to a dragon, a furious, hot-tempered, and woman. I wonder if she's Irish. Anyway, so she faces him head on and calls him Mr. Dresden. So you could tell that the relationship is so drastically different with with her yeah, and it's with a Dresden. cordial one at its best. They're cordial. At its best. Absolutely. At its best. Mm-hmm. Only at its best. And the fact that she calls him Mr. Dresden, the fact that she's very formal with him, speaks to that and it's just so interesting how the exchange goes and how dresden acknowledges that even he's not angry about it and i think that it speaks deeply to dresden and his morals because he knows exactly what's going on so that jail scene speaks a lot to who dresden is and speaks a lot to who michael is and it actually prefaces later scenes wherein you actually find out who Dresden is and how guilt-ridden he can feel, how powerful he can feel about various things that happen in his life. Michael tells Harry, you can't use it like that. And Leah gets a hold of Amarachius. And Michael says, what have you done? And to me, it was kind of 
like, I wouldn't say it was foreshadowing, but maybe just kind of a representation of how small an action, like an instinctive reaction, had such a big consequence. And I kind of feel like that speaks to everything that Harry does. Actually, let's just quickly, because I think we've covered. Um, actually, Jessica, because you're the first reader, do you have any further thoughts on this before we transition out of this and say our goodnights? No, I don't think so. I think I pretty much um, spilled my guts about it. <laughs> I'll just say that I enjoyed it, and I'm definitely looking forward to reading the other books. All right. Well, that transitions the... Tra- well, that transitions us nicely into final thoughts. So yeah, just the bullet point, too long, didn't read version of what your thoughts were. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Really, really uh, where the series starts to take off four stars. Definitely enjoyed it. This was the point where when I first read it, I couldn't put the series down and I'm having a really hard time not doing that again (laughs) so five stars i enjoyed it as well when i first read it i gave the book three stars i think now if i were to re-rate it i would easily rate it four lots of character depth enjoyable plot uh growth in the writing very much enjoyed the book four stars definitely four stars as i said this is the first one where I feel like I can say I like it without having to add the qualifier despite itself. Um, four stars out of five. I want to thank everyone out there for listening. Um, Boz, where can we find you? You are welcome to find me on Twitter. I'm at Bosman06. All right. And Ferry, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter as well, and I am at musicfairy15. Jessica, where can we find you? I am also on Twitter. I am at BrailleUserJess. All right, and TJ, where can we find you? My Twitter is T Squires, T S Q U I R E S 711. And the current project I'm working on is trying to get Baza to start a YouTube channel because I think he can make a lot of money with his music. Fair enough. Aww. Yeah, no, Baz, do that because I want to ride your coattails all the way to the top, man. Exactly. On behalf of the Genre Book Club podcast, I want to thank each and every one of you for listening. It really does mean a lot. If you want to participate in the podcast, feel free to send us a message on Twitter. The Genre Book Club is our handle. Our podcast art was designed by Alexander Barnes. Head on over to AmaranthChronicles.com to buy his and Chris's book. It's really good, I promise. Our podcast music was composed by Bazad Balut, and feel free to share your appreciation for that with him on twitter if you enjoy it maybe it'll convince him to make a youtube channel once again on behalf of the genre book club podcast thank you so much for listening and happy reading
<laughs> and then All maybe right. just sneak in a promotion. You know, you can sponsor his videos. And oh, since yeah, he's absolutely. in the podcast, we can do it for free. <laughs> and then maybe we'll actually have double-digit listeners. <laughs> Someday, man. <laughs> All right. And Leslie, where can we find you? You can also find me on Twitter at Firesong711. And maybe if Razad starts a YouTube channel, I can collaborate with him. Absolutely. And theoretically, you can find me on Twitter at Priman, P-R-E-I-M-A-N, 790. So you're better luck looking for Chris or Christopher Priman on Goodreads. I would also welcome you to come check out TheAmaranthChronicles.com. This is a place where me and my writing partner sell our book, um, as well as other Amaranth Chronicles merch. It's also where I am currently publishing a book review a week, exclusively things that I enjoyed because I want to bring a little bit more positivity into the world, uh, where my buddy poses um, or posts his you know, thoughts on life, society, gaming, or whatever else strikes his mind, along with some really good art for those of you who are inclined in that direction. Uh, digital renderings, 3D renderings, and things like that. Podcast art. <clears throat> oh, he did do our podcast art. So I'd urge you guys to pop on over there if you'd like. The clicks help if you want to buy a book or something else while you're there. That helps more, but just heading on over to the site it make me very happy, and you will like me when I'm happy. Buy the book. It's really good. Buy my book. Yes, the book is actually really great. <laughs> I really like the book, and I think you might too. I have in no way paid these people to say this, and I'm not holding a gun against any of their heads right now. Stop it, that hurts. Oh, hey, watch where you put that. Is that... I, that wasn't I, the gun. That felt a little fleshy. Is that a gun? Okay, maybe he's moving just happy on. to see me want to edit this. Moving hastily along. There it is. Yes, yes he said it. Awesome. What? All right. Guys, this was a this was a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> thank you. So I want to thank TJ again for having the brainchild of this and for not being upset when I took on the role of ringmaster. Not at all. I'll just go like, uh, yeah, uh, mm, uh. So you do it better <laughs> than I do. It, it's it's a blast. I, I enjoy recording this every month. 